If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 5 this morning, as we continue our study in John's Gospel. We're looking at verses 19 through 23 this morning. The Lord's help. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin now. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here together, to look into your word. I pray, Father, that your word would richly dwell in us this morning, that we would be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ, his likeness in our character and in our actions. Pray that our trust in him would be increased Magnified, we ask with the disciples, increase our faith, increase our love for the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, Evidence That Demands the Right Verdict. Evidence That Demands the Right Verdict. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment, and perhaps it's not too hard for you to imagine such a scenario, but imagine a scenario in which, because of your beliefs, or something that you are compelled to do because of your belief, that everyone around you becomes enraged. They are angry with you. Angry to the point that they are ready to kill you. They are incensed by your stance. No matter how graciously you say it, no matter how much what you have done or what you've said has contributed to their well-being and to their good, they want to kill you. So angry are they. What would you say in that moment? What would you say? What would you do? Would you remain silent so as not to further enrage the mob? Would you perhaps speak but soften your statement so that somehow it would serve to placate them and satisfy them that you are not the threat that they think that you are? Or would you more clearly, more boldly, Set forth the truth they need to hear. Well, this morning in our text, in John chapter 5, we find Jesus doing the latter. Setting forth more clearly, more boldly, truth that they need to hear, even though they are enraged to the point of murder. Let's look at John chapter 5. Let's go back to verse 17. Remember, Jesus has just healed the lame man on the Sabbath day. But he answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself then equal with God. Point of decision. Inflection point. What will Jesus do? Verse 19, therefore. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So in these verses before us this morning, already admired and in the middle of great controversy, Jesus clarifies and reasserts four aspects of his union with the Father, of his being God in human flesh. Thus, doubling down on what they understood him to have said previously, that he is God. Now, I'll say this, that the four aspects that I want you to see this morning are bookended uh, at the beginning and the end by both the reality of who Jesus is and the purpose of why Jesus came and revealed these truths. And so because of these things, both the reality of who Jesus is and the reason why he came make these aspects the dynamic truths that they are this morning. And so let's begin by looking at bookend number one. The first bookend that we find occurs in verse 19. And the bookend is this. The reality is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Look at verse 19. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. We read the same thing uh, from the pen of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. This is how he chooses to open his letter. And unless we think that this is unimportant material that we can simply fly over and fly by, it is not. The book of Hebrews stands perhaps only seconded in its massive importance by the book of Romans in the New Testament. They're all important. They're all inspired. Don't hear me say that, that they're not. But Hebrews is a mountain. Hebrews is a juggernaut. Hebrews is a masterpiece. And notice how the author starts. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, meaning the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. He is a reflector of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his nature all that god is the son is all that god does the son does 
This is the reality that Jesus is confronting these Pharisees with and these Jewish people with in verse 19. Now, they are angry that he seems to have insinuated that he is God. And it's as if Jesus says, it's not enough for you to think I am insinuating that I am God. I'm here to tell you bluntly, I am God. And here is how you know that I am God, because I can do nothing of myself. Uh, Translated another way, on my own initiative, I can do nothing. I only do what I do, and I'm only able to do what I do, because I have received it both by watching my Father and by the Father's commissioning me to do what I do. And let me remind you, Only God can do what God does. I am God. I am He. I am the Son. I am the Messiah. I am, in our parlance today, second member of the Trinity, of the Godhead. This is the reality that Jesus confronts him with. He does not back down. Why does Jesus not back down? Why does Jesus not retreat in order to make them more prone to accept what he says? Because Jesus is more interested in communicating the truth they need more than what they want. And so he delivers straightforwardly instead of moving back or trying to reword or repackage the truth. He just in an unvarnished way, states the truth because it is truth they need. Brothers and sisters, this to us here in this room this morning is not controversial. But I can promise you this, as soon as you walk out those doors this morning, this is a controversial truth to just about everyone you will meet. Because it defies science. You cannot recreate the hypostatic union of God in flesh in a laboratory somewhere. You cannot merge Jesus with the Jesus of other religions. And be sure, there are other Jesuses in other religions, but they are not God. Be it the Muslims or be it the Mormons, Jesus stands alone, unique, revealed in Scripture as God. And we must not turn away or turn back or repackage what Jesus so clearly wants us to understand in his statement this morning. He is God. The Jewish establishment is angered by Jesus. Have you ever met anyone angered by Jesus of the scripture? Oh, they're everywhere. Like I said, you don't have to go far out of this building to find them. That they will they will become very quickly upset with you. It's the case with Mormons. They 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 want you to believe they're just like you and they believe in the same Jesus you do. No, you don't. Our Jesus is uncreated. Theirs is. Their Jesus is the brother of Satan. Ours isn't. We have a Jesus who alone in himself is unique. He is uncreated and he angers the people around him by saying this. 
And they turn what Jesus states as a truth, they turn it into an accusation. They take what is true and beautiful and good and right and turn it into an accusation of hostility. Is it because what Jesus said isn't true? No, it's because they have rejected what is truth. The only accusation that these people are leveling against Jesus is not an accusation against Jesus. It is an accusation and an indictment upon themselves. Remember this, brothers and sisters, at any point that we find ourselves at odds with the God of the Bible, with the Scripture itself, the accusation is not against God or the Bible. It is an accusation and a condemnation of us. It is not that we read the Bible. It is that the Bible reads us. And it reveals the true nature of the problem. And the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with Scripture. The problem is with the wicked hearts of the people who have rejected Jesus in unbelief. Jesus bookends that he gives us, clarifies this truth. And notice how he does it. Look at the beginning. Jesus answered them. He, he knows what they're wanting to do. He knows they are seeking to kill him. He knows the accusations that this man has declared himself to be God. And notice how he responds. Truly, truly. This is not something Jesus says lightly. This is a formula of authority. This is a formula that rests upon the revealed truth of God. It is a provable truth. It is a consistent truth. It is divine truth. A a truth that will become the motif of this passage. Jesus does not speak as a rebel. Jesus does not speak as merely self-authenticated. Jesus speaks on the basis and the authority of divinely revealed truth that has come before him. Truly, truly, on authority I say to you. And then begins to give the four aspects that so clearly define Jesus as God at complete unity with God. And he begins by saying this, if I were to act on my own, if I were speaking on my own, I would have no authority, but I do not speak on my own. Notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing. It's not me. It's my father. So if you see me doing something, know this, that it is my Father who is actually doing it. I am just reflecting, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, I am the radiance of His glory. I do everything that I see my Father do. And we know this intuitively, don't we, dads? That our children reflect what we do, for good or for bad. When daddy comes home and he takes off his work boots, as soon as those little boys and girls can walk, what do they do? They put on daddy's boots. And they go shuffling through the house. And we all have pictures of our children doing that. 
When Daddy puts on his tool belt, little Johnny stuffs his diaper with plastic screwdrivers and hammers and saws, and he's going to be like Daddy. All that they see Daddy do, they do. Jesus says, it's no different than with my Heavenly Father. All that I see the Heavenly Father doing, that's what you see me doing. I do nothing as a rebel. I do nothing different than what he has done himself. I can do nothing of my own initiative. I don't have a different will than my father has. I'm in one accord with my father. No, parents, we know what this is like. Because our children are... are, are, are... Kids, I'm sorry. You're master manipulators. You know which parent likes what when the other one may not like it. And when it's time for you to want the same thing that the one likes, you go and ask the one even though the other has said no. And, you, and, and children are masters, aren't they, at finding a divided will between mom and dad? And that's a lesson we all have to teach. If daddy tells you no, mommy's going to tell you no. And don't go ask mommy if daddy tells you no. And vice versa. Jesus is saying essentially the same to the Pharisees. I am not, you know, on a rebel mission. I and my father are one. We have one will. One plan. And all that the father does, then you see me do. Because we are unified. Because we are both God. Father and son. And spirit. God. But know this, if the Father is doing something, I will do it. I will do it. I will not look at my Father and see my Father doing something, willing something, and then refuse to participate. How much this must have cut at those Pharisees. You're telling us that God the Father would violate himself the answer is easy to that no because what you are serving is not god you're serving your own religion god knows nothing about what you are about and the knife is twisted again would god heal a lame man on the sabbath you better believe he would And he did. Through the Son. What perfect unity. One commentator said this. Perfect sonship. Involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. Perfect sonship. Involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. D.A. Carson said. To counter that, separate self-determined action would be a denial of his sonship. In other words, if Jesus didn't do all that the Father showed him, that he himself was doing, he wouldn't be the son. He would be an imposter. And so in their mind, in their thinking, this Jesus leaves no ambiguity as to who he is. What has transpired and what is being communicated is perfect reflection of the God of Abraham and it has come straight from the God of Abraham which Jesus in John chapter 8 will get into further right with them that I am 
your God, the one you profess to worship, I am he. And for all that the Pharisees and all that the Jewish people in Jesus' day and in this situation are getting wrong, let's give them some credit, okay? Credit where credit is due. They understand this, that what Jesus is asserting, that he is equal with the Father in power, and he is. They hear Jesus saying that he is equal in essence or attributes and character of the Father, and he is. They hear Jesus saying that he is equal in will with the Father, and he is. They hear Jesus say that he is equal in authority with the Father, and he is. They hear Jesus say that he is equal in majesty with the Father, and he is. And they don't like it. Again, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with them. So many times when we are evangelizing and people reject what we're saying, it's not you. It's not your message. It's them. And it is their hardness of heart and their unbelief that causes them to reject the truth of who Jesus is. And so I want you now to notice the four aspects, the four proofs then that Jesus now goes into proving that he is God. Four aspects of proof that Jesus gives. Look at the latter half of verse 19. And just so you understand this for your own study, because I don't want you to think that this, you know, these are things you need to be mining out too. Each one of these is marked by the simple word for. Not the number four, but F-O-R, of which there are F-O-U-R. It's confusing, I know. But there's an aspect of imitation. Look at the end of verse 19. Jesus gives the first proof, the first aspect, and he says, I am God, I, I, I and the Father, you know, are one for... Proof number one. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. There is proof in my imitation. Do you ever see Jesus do anything that God the Father, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, in all that he is, would not do? Does the Son ever contradict or bring shame to the Father? Never. Never. He is quite literally... The perfect son. There is no other perfect son. It is him alone. He imitates the father and shows us what the father is like. Have you ever wondered in your life, I wonder what God would do. I wonder what God would say in this instance. What would, what would God think? And there's a really simple solution. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus think? For if you want to know how the Father thinks and what the Father speaks, look at what Jesus does, and you will know. It is perfect in his reflection of the Father. For all that Jesus has done and said, the Father has willed to be done and said. 
Jesus' earthly life, among all the other things that it is, is foundationally this, a picture, a perfect picture of the Father. He is simply the mirror by which we know the Father. Because He is a perfect Son who in every possible aspect reflects His Father. Again, the biting nature of this statement to anyone who rejects Jesus is that they are rejecting the Father. These Pharisees, these conscientious Jews, these religious Jews who are listening to this are struck by one reality. If you are not for me, you are against me. And if you are against me, you are on an active campaign of idolatrous rebellion against your father. Who wants to hear that? That is hard-hitting truth. God is not open to their interpretation, and this is what they are guilty of. They are guilty of now centuries of interpreting God according to their own likes and dislikes. Jesus is not dealing with Jews who take the Old Testament and only the Old Testament at face value without adding all of man's thoughts to God. God is not open to their interpretation. Listen, God's not open to your interpretation. Well, I like to think of God as... There was a well-known preacher who was teaching a class in seminary. And he began his class by asking the students one day, Tell me, what is God like? And the students began to go down the rows came to one student, the student said, well, I like to think of God as, and he began to go on, and the teacher, to make a point, said, thank you, student, for telling us so much about yourself. And it's true. God is not open to our interpretation and our personal tailored customized version of God and yet this is exactly what these people in Jesus day have done they have thrown away the father and proof of that is that they are trying to cast away the son they don't like the father because they don't like the son to observe the son is to observe the father and to know the father there is no disunity in the two It is perfect imitation. Secondly, there is the proof and the aspect in verse 20 of revelation. Of what is clearly revealed. For the father loves the son and he does what? What does the father do? Because he loves. Look at the text. Look what it says. The father loves the son and because he loves the son, he does what? Shows him. Reveals something to him, right? He shows him all things that he himself is doing. That's how we know that the Father loves the Son, is by the act of divine revelation. And this is a great realignment in our own thinking. That, That God demonstrates his love by his revealing. 
His love primarily for who? Look back at verse 20. For the Father loves who? The Son. We tend to get things a little bit order, out of order, cart before horse kind of a thing. Because we believe that, that God, in all that He is and all that He does in love, is primarily focused on loving us. But He's not. God loves the Son. And because his love for the Son is so great, he reveals all things that he is doing for the Son in revealing to the Son because of perfect love for the Son. And we become the beneficiaries. But it starts with an eternal, immutable, unchanging love for his Son. Now, does God love us? He certainly does. But he loves his son more. He loves his son more. And so there's this aspect, this proof of revelation. How do we know that Jesus is God? Well, we know that Jesus is God because of what God has done for him. And that is to reveal his own love for his son by revealing all things to him. If we were to ask the question in conversation with one another, why has God done what he's done? And we might rightly answer, by the way, for his glory. That's true. That's true. But that might be a bit abstract. The real reason that God has done all that he has done is this, that he loves his son. And everything that God does is to reflect and reveal the love for His Son. God loves the Son. And this is not agapao love. This is phileo love. This is a, 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 another completely t- different type of love. Jesus talks about agapao love in John 3. Now he talks about phileo love in John 5 to give us the full scope and the full understanding of the love of God. God's love for us is complete love. Because it is complete love for the Son. The Father loves the Son. And because He loves the Son, He reveals everything to the Son, and because the Son loves the Father, the Son obeys and imitates everything that the Father has revealed to Him, thus completing that perfect unity in their relationship. The Father loves and reveals, the Son loves and obeys what has been revealed and imitates it. The Father does all that He does in revelation out of love for the Son. And you and I simply drink from the overflow of that perfect, immutable, eternal love. You say, well, Brian, this might be a bit of eisegesis. I've never really thought of it that way. Maybe you're off. Well, I don't think I am. And I want to invite you to John chapter 17 now. So turn over a few chapters Unless we think that Jesus misspoke, that I've misrepresented the case, etc. I want you to notice how Jesus closes out his earthly life. 
John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer before his father, right before his crucifixion. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also, meaning the twelve. He doesn't just pray for them, but he's praying for all also who believe in me through their word. That's us this morning, by the way. We are downstream of the apostles and the apostles' doctrine. And we have believed because of their word passed on to us that they may all be one. Even as you and Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, we're going back, aren't we, to John 5. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and what? Loved them, even as you have loved me. How do we know that God loves us? Because he loved the son first. And because he revealed all things to the son. And that through the son now we know that God loves us. But apart from God loving the son first. God is not love. Father I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. Where does the glory of Christ come from? Now look, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. What is the glory of Christ but the love of the Father for the Son? This is an unbelievable defense of the Trinity eternally existing. Together. Against the strict monotheism of Judaism. Against the strict monotheism of Islam. Who say there's only one God and there's ever only been one God. Then how does God love? Does God change? They'll tell you no, God doesn't change. So how do we know God is love eternally if he is alone in eternity? We know that he is love. That he is eternally, unchangingly love because he loved the Son and the Son's glory is that of his Father's love for him. Go back to John 5. The Father loves the Son and because he loves the Son, he reveals all things to the Son. And he goes on and he says this. And he shows him, meaning the Son, all things that he himself is doing. What is God doing but breathing out life, but breathing out truth, but breathing out the glory that he is by what we see Jesus doing? He is doing all these things and the Son is participating in that. And then he goes on and he says this, that he himself is doing and that the Father will show him even greater works than these so that you will marvel. If you thought what you saw with the lame man at Bethesda was something, 
You haven't seen anything yet. Wait until the graves start opening. Wait until the dead live. Wait until you see things that there is no earthly explanation for. Wait until you see the veil and your precious temple rent from top to bottom. Wait until you see the end of animal sacrifice. Wait until you see the coming of the Son of Man the second time. Oh, I'll show you greater works than you could ever dream of seeing. And this will all happen because the Father loves the Son. And because He loves the Son, He reveals through the Son all that He is. So that the Son does all that the Father is doing and reflects the full picture of God in his perfection no wonder they're going to stand in awe but then the third proof for the third aspect is that of power look at verse 21 for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes Jesus now seizes upon one of the highest examples of how he is God and how he imitates fully the Father, and that is this power. Unmitigated power. And it is duplicated perfectly in him. We might look at this and say, you know, but Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Hasn't been mass resurrection yet. There hasn't been this proof yet. I mean, Yeah, you know, maybe there's been a few isolated incidents where the dead have been raised. Like you think about the widow at Zarephath and Elijah. There's this thing scattered throughout Scripture. We look at this and go, okay, maybe. But what we have to understand is that in the Jewish consciousness, in the Jewish mind, they expected God to be one who raised the dead. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, This is the account of Naaman, the leper. And this has been a long-known attribute and prerogative of God to give life to the dead. He says this, When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? You see, they, they understand that God has the power to raise the dead. And Jesus says, I'm just here to reflect that. I'm here to show you that. I'm here because that's what the Father does. You know that's what the Father does. Now watch me do it. And then you'll know that the Father and I are one. Certainly in the age to come, we have hope in the resurrection, don't we? That that God raises the dead. For, For all of you who live in Midland, I think most of you at least, I keep forgetting about the 349 cutoff here. But until that was finished, you had to drive past the cemetery to get to church. Most of you. Some of you live further this way. Some of you come from the other way. But you know, there's coming a day when all the believers who are buried in that cemetery are going to break the ground wide open. I hope I'm driving by when that happens, by the way. I want to see it. I want to stay just long enough to watch it happen and then go. I don't want to be here after. 
We know that day's coming, don't we? Some of us have loved ones buried there or other places, and our hope is that someday that those graves are going to be open. And Jesus says, hey, I've got something greater to show you. I'm going to raise the dead. But until then, there is something even more close to home that Jesus is doing. And notice what he says. I give life to those whom I wish to give. What's he speaking of now? He's speaking of redemption. Which, by the way, is a prerequisite. And there will be nobody raised to life in the resurrection that hasn't first been given this kind of life. Spiritual life. Spiritual rebirth. The new birth. Sovereign regeneration. And again, this is a, a, a biting cut across the grain of these pious Jews who think they're going to live forever just because they're descended from Abraham. Jesus says, not so. Your ancestry.com results matter nothing to me. I don't care who your earthly fathers were. That doesn't matter to me. Life comes from the ones whom I choose to give it to. It's not a, hey, I'm a Jew, so I'm in. No, life comes from me. I am the source of life. Why? Because the Father's the source of life. The Father is the source of life. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Where does spiritual life or resurrection life come from? From Jesus. Why? Because he's seen the Father doing it all along. He knows what the Father does. He joins in the work of the Father. Reflecting perfectly the work of the Father. Lastly, Look at the fourth aspect in verses 22 and down through the first part of verse 23. And that is the aspect or the proof of his authority. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. The fourth way in which Jesus explains that he is God and that he he is Uh, a member of the Godhead, and that he is perfectly aligned with the Father, is this, that he holds the power of all judgment. You know who the most powerful people are in any given society? It's the judges. They have, for good or ill, the power to change everything about us, the, the way we live our lives. They control the finances of a county, of a city. They control judicial code, meeting out justice or a lack of justice. Judges are incredibly powerful people. But there is no judge more powerful or more important than the one who will judge you and your destiny in eternity. Others can only touch you here in this life. Jesus is a judge that will touch you for all of eternity. And to those who do not receive Jesus as an advocate, they will face Jesus as a judge. 
and he will judge all things. The Father doesn't judge anyone. He has delegated that responsibility to his son because in the rejection of his son, who could hold more perfect judgment than than the one who's been rejected? God is a righteous judge. He is. He is a perfect judge. Uh, Genesis eighteen twenty nine. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? That's referring to the Father. Father is a righteous judge. Psalm eleven seven eleven. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So God is the Father is is not opposed to. Being a judge, he is one, but he's given it to his son to carry out. As to how men have accepted or rejected him and his son. And there's coming a day when every knee will bow, isn't there? And every tongue will confess. That's not believers, that's everyone. The whole earth. All the things that get under your skin today. I'm not saying they don't get under mine and shouldn't get under our skin. When we see the grotesqueness of the God-hating and God-rejecting world around us, just remember this, someday they'll be on their knees. And they will be saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. It'll be too late for some. But they will say Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. And the father who himself is a judge. Who has been revered as a judge throughout the Old Testament. Has now said all of that function I give to my son. Just as I am a judge. He is a judge. And he will judge all things and all men. Which leads us to the last and the conclusion here this morning. And that is the last bookend that surrounds these four proofs. And that bookend is this. That Jesus came to show the reality of God. Himself being God. The purpose for which he came though is the worthiness of his worship. To make us worthy In our worship of him. Notice verse 23. We must honor the son. Even as we would claim to honor the father. He who does not honor the son. Does not honor the father. Who sent him. We're bound up in. The worship of the son. If we desire to worship the father. Jesus is the highly exalted Son of God. That's the picture here. That's the picture that these Jews are missing so tragically so. They're missing the fact that Jesus is the, the, the honored Son. Philippians 2.9 For this reason God has also highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and they will all say what? Jesus Christ is exalted Lord. 
master ruler to the glory of God the Father. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? To honor the Son is to honor the Father. To reject the Son is to reject the Father. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus stand up to this hostile crowd? Why was Jesus willing to do all that he did? Because he's the Son. And that the world through him might know the Father. I want to leave you with one last thought before we go to the Lord's table this morning. And that thought comes again, if you would, go back to John 17 with me. Because it ties in to the very end of this passage this morning in verse 23. Now get the picture. Get the picture. The people in chapter 5 who wanted to kill Jesus are only moments away now from getting their wish. Jesus has gone to the garden to pray one last time with his father. He's gone to commune with heaven itself. He's gone to talk to the very one whom he gave his life to come and reflect out of mutual love for each other. He is in the garden. And he's delivering these beautiful words. Jesus spoke, John 17 verse 1, these things. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. All things are now fulfilled. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And what is that glory that we just discovered a few moments ago later in this very chapter? The love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father that ends in our redemption. Honor the Son. Honor the Father. And in so doing, you are participating in the very mission of Christ Himself. Why did Jesus come? To bring glory to the Father. Why did the Father send the Son? Glorify the Son. Now, are you glorifying both? Are you glorifying the Father through the Son? Are you honoring the Father through the Son? Are you believing all that Jesus has said It's true about himself. This is what we're called to do. This is a purpose for which he came. That we might participate in that great eternal desire of the Father 
and the Son to glorify themselves. By their love for one another that has spilled over to us, that we might be changed by that and in turn honor the Son and in so doing honor the Father. The world recoiled at this in Jesus' day. The world's going to recoil against it in our day too. They may even recoil at it, brothers and sisters. When you tell them Jesus' first priority is not you. It's the glory of his Father. The honor of his Father's name. The love of God for you is true, but it is not superior to his love for his Son. Now, as we partake of the Lord's table in just a moment, I want you to remember this this morning. What we hold in our hands is a love so perfect, so awesome, so all-encompassing that the love of the Father for the Son Somehow it's def- it defies human imagination. Involves the son's own death. To reveal the glories of heaven. Of which you and I become partakers. There is nothing you can compare that to. I... Don't love anyone on this earth more than I love my wife. But as great as that love is, it doesn't spill over and affect you whatsoever. But the love of the Father for His Son is so great that it spills over for us. And we become the beneficiaries. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? O oh my soul, what wondrous love is this? Father, thank you for the love that you had for the Son from eternity past that would cause your will to be worked out by His own coming. Lord Jesus, that Your coming in love for Your Father, that the Father would be honored through You, the Son. It's just mind-boggling and mind-blowing to us. But in so doing, You you showed that You are God and that, that this grand design and grand purpose of Your love for each other has come now and it has affected us who believe What great love is this? We just simply like the words. But do cause us in our own limitations to honor you. Honor you right now, Father and Son, Lord Jesus, in our thoughts, in our hearts, as we worship you, as we hold the bread and the the cup and we 
meditate on that great love that you had for each other, that revealed the Son, that empowered the Son, that gave authority to the Son, has now become ours. May we worship and give thanks around that. We love you. We can only say that because of your great love for the Son and now for us. We pray that you would use this time to sanctify us, cause us to grow, and be strengthened by this. In Jesus' name, amen.